Thanks for joining us for the November edition of the Lee Schools TV podcast. I'm Rob Spicker, Assistant Director in the Communications Department, and our focus today is going to be on Hurricane Ian. We're going to go behind the scenes a little bit about the decision-making process in the School District of Lee County as we recovered from this hurricane with Chief of Staff Michael Ramirez, who's joining us here today. As Chief of Staff, Mike was kind of the point person for the superintendent to help direct the response, the recovery, and the reopening from Hurricane Ian. So, Mike, I want to thank you for joining us taking us into this uh, deep dive a little bit. I want to go back maybe a few days before the storm, a week or so before, because that's really when the school district kind of puts its hat on and says, we've got a storm coming. We've got to start thinking about it, planning ahead, and making decisions. So what's happening in that seven to five day time frame before Hurricane Ian actually even hits? Sure. So anytime we have any type of potential impending storm, uh, we are um, immediately connected with our county emergency operations center. So our executive director, our Chief Newland over safety, um, continues to provide us updates around what we're thinking, what we're seeing with the storm, potential projections and impacts. So, um, so as late as seven days out, we were we were monitoring the storm and seeing where the paths were and, and trying to follow. You know, knowing that it's you know it's a maze when you look at all those different projections. It's kind of a you know, zigzag could go anyway. So, uh, but we continued to monitor it and, and stay attuned, get updates. So we were getting daily updates around where we, where the storm was and potential landfall um, locations. <clears throat> as we continue to work through, as we got a little closer, you know, three days out <clears throat> and we started to see a little bit more, uh, uh, possibility, uh, we started to really stand up some, you know, meetings, you know, with our own, with our own folks here in the district or what we'll call our own, you know, least schools or school district, you know, our own EOC um, team to be able to start thinking about, you know, what that looks like and reviewing our pre-storm, during storm, our manual, you know, we obviously have protocols around what that looks like. So we started reviewing those, you know, and kind of going over, you know, all the all the different pieces that we need to be prepared for. One of those key decisions you have to make when these storms approach is closing schools. So that comes on Monday that schools are closed. How did that, what was the final determining factor to say it's time? Yeah, so we um, we stayed connected through the weekend. We actually had a we had a standing call. We had a call Friday. We had a call Saturday. We had a call on Sunday with our own immediate team as we're thinking about the preparations. And so Monday uh, Monday about midday, um, we had a meeting with the Lee County Emergency Operations Center. So we went there, Dr. Bernier, myself, and a couple of few key staff members to really talk about what the projections were, what we were seeing. So <clears throat> our county manager Roger Dijerlay, you know, our, our sheriff. Uh, um, just started to really look at um, here's where we could potentially see things. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think it's important to know that a lot of those projections didn't have the storm, didn't have Lee County or, or our district in direct hit early on. Those trajectories, obviously, there was a significant shift in the mm -hmm. hours following. But we started to look at um, what did we see and the preparations for that. And when we think about that, um, we want to think, we think about it in two ways, right? It's always about student safety and getting our kids. So we had school on Monday, but we started looking at, the potential projections of when the storm and when conditions would begin to uh, change and our ability to be able to get students to school and back home safely mm -hmm. becomes a decision point, as well as the ability for us to obviously not have schools so that um, our shelters, because, you know, a number of our shelters are, you know, a number of our schools are shelters, so being able to do that. So, um, and so that Monday we came, you know, away from the EOC while the, the, the projections didn't have a direct hit. Um, there was a forecast of changing weather conditions, particularly for Tuesday evening. Uh, and that's when the decision um, 
late afternoon on that Monday, the decision was made to, um, you know, cancel school for the following day for students, you know, for that, for the, because of the, obviously the safety. And then there's the preparation component, right? For our, for employees, for staff, parents, to be able to prepare for what the potential may be. Uh, So those are kind of the two decision points that we looked at Mm -hmm. when we ultimately didn't have school. Um, And then obviously working with, with the county and notifying them, you know, we were not going to have school on Tuesday. So, and then their ability to mobilize and potentially at that point, because it's still not projected to be a directive, but to potentially open uh, some of our school shelters. And that happened Tuesday morning. The shelters are opening up. We've got school staff that report to those sites. But at the district level, there's the presence of mind to start working with our insurance companies in FEMA to, to plan for a recovery. So first, I like to, you know, our, the, the opening of our shelters, I mean, tremendous appreciation and gratitude goes out to our school leaders and our teams who, you know, I don't know if everyone knows, manage the shelters, right? So our own, our own staff manage the shelters, and um, it's a commitment our leaders make, you know, when they take on, you know, all these roles. And so incredible gratitude and appreciation for that and, and the work that happened there to serve our community. We, we work in service of our community. And so um, looking at that, then kind of moving forward to like when we, we mobilize, we mobilize shelters. I think the plan was originally it was we opened eight shelters with an additional four that were going to come on. There was a total of 15 total. Three other shelters were not um, a part of that. But just thinking through what that looked like um, and really but the foresight, right? So we had that. We, we were coming together. And so we began the conversations. You know, we had the shelters mobilized and opening that. But started to think about, you know, you know, during storm and post-storm, right? What, what impacts would that be? So it was really important that we were ready for the after, you know, preparing for, you know, obviously praying and hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst and, and trying to triage it in that form. So, you know, prior to Ian coming on Wednesday, like we had stood up and had a... Um, we connected with, a, with our FEMA consultant that would help us assess damages after the storm if we were in a place where we needed to assess damage. And so we had that. Um, we also established our radio communication protocols in the event that we lost power, that we would still be able to, to communicate. Um, and, you know, um, we know that that happened for several days, but we had radio communication, which, you know, for the, for the days after the storm, for several days after the storm, our only means of communication with our district leadership team or our, our own internal EOC was, was via radio communication. We had, and so we established some protocols for that, as well as intentional check-ins throughout, um, you know, before the storm. And then we worked on a potential cadence, you know, during and post-storm. So Wednesday, when Hurricane Ian comes through, it, it is that worst-case scenario that's been talked about but never seems to happen, right? The storm surge is huge on the beach. The winds are powerful through Cape Coral. So i just curious to ask you, as somebody who's been in Florida for a while, at what point did you realize this wasn't just a storm that will open up in a few days from now, that this was going to be a disaster? Yes, uh, you know, it was it definitely was intense. And, you know, there was uh, all types of emotions and even, you know, Having been in Florida, I mean, each storm is different, and it brings its own emotions. And obviously, with two young girls at home, with a wife and a and a small dog, it adds to as you're managing the storm and obviously the responsibilities that you have. But uh, I think that you know, probably sometime as the, as the storm hit, uh, began to make landfall. You know, I think it's important. Our executive director, Chief Newland, was you know he was at the emergency operations center and he was there for the duration of the storm, and so. As we lost power, I think I can remember in my own home, somewhere around 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we lost power that Wednesday 
and didn't get power on until that following Friday. So we had, you know, a significant number of days without power. Um, but so he was our eyes and ears just providing us updates because we didn't have television um, and we didn't have, you know, uh, the ability to be able to see. So he was our eyes and ears to let us know the storm had shifted. It, it seemed like the eye was making landfall, you know, around the Cape Coral area. And, and so he was really the ones that was providing us those updates. And, you know, in that shift, you began to just uh, get a sense from him, from what he was seeing as he was sharing with us that, you know, this was a storm that he was starting to see some of the impacts and, and what it had had as it, as it made its way over Cuba and coming towards, you know, the s- Southwest Florida on um, that, you know, this wasn't going to be, this wasn't going to be an ordinary storm. It was going to be something that potentially could bring some significant yeah. damage. Yeah. I know when I saw the, the pictures of the roadway for the Sanibel Causeway Thursday morning, that's when I realized how big this was. It wasn't just one of those, we'll be back in a couple of days. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because that, that was one of the first things that Chief Newland mentioned. He said, you know, you know, we're like, he just said, guys, like this is the catastrophic damage I've never seen. And and he mentioned, you know, I can remember the radio call, I still kind of get chills. He said, you know, the the, sand, the causeway is it's not there. He said it just fell in, it fell in the, it's in the water. And so I think it was, I could remember kind of the radio silence because we were all, all on radio. But I can remember that. He's like, I just, I don't have any words to describe what I'm seeing, you know, because, you know, the emergency operations center has all the footage up so you're able to see and, and the broadcasting. And, mm-hmm. and it was, um, we began to really understand that um, it became a reality that we were going to, we had significant work ahead of us. So we wake up, on that Thursday morning, it's time to begin the recovery effort. And one of the things the superintendent has mentioned to me is that he, he wanted a triad approach to getting us back on our feet. So what does that mean, and, and how do you implement that? Yeah, sure. So the triad approach is really around you're working on the immediate. Like, what's the immediate, what's the immediate issue, concern, problem? There's the next, and then there's the what I call the next next, right? That, that longer term, like things that we have to be thinking about. So, you know, the immediate was around just immediate assessment and kind of looking at that. But then we started thinking about the next, right? How do we connect with our school leaders, connect with schools, start to assess damage. And then the, that next next or that longer term is now, how do we respond to that damage? And, and when we start thinking about what type of damage, because at that point it was still an unknown around what type of damage. And we know that, you know, in some of our buildings, um, we had minimal impact, but in others, you know, a few bu- buildings, we had significant, you know, damage that we were not going to be able to potentially return students. So, so you, you start thinking about all those things. So while we're working on, so it's about mobilizing, dealing with the immediate, but then mobilizing the right key folks. And I cannot, I cannot uh, thank enough the, the, not only the partnership with Lee County Emergency Operations Center, which became our home base because our very own building didn't have power. So we actually... We posted up in the cafeteria of the Emergency Operations Center, and that became, I know, Rob, you were there a couple of days, so we actually spent, you know, significant time, and, and, um, you know, so I can't thank, you know, our county uh, emergency operations center, can't thank our sheriff enough for the opportunity he gave us as we started to, um, you know, support us in assessing our buildings, um, including a ride, you know, took us up in the, in the chopper, you know, both Dr. Bernie and myself to, to our island schools as well to, to visit. Um, and then incredible support from districts around the state, you know, the Department of Education, our, 
our commissioner of education came down and, and went up in the helicopter with our superintendent, Dr. Bernier, and, and, you know, what followed, you know, what followed was just an outpouring of support, not only from the Department of Education here in Florida, but also from school districts around the state. It was really incredible. It was. Let me ask you about those flights to those schools, particularly over the county, but out to the barrier islands, and the impressions and the, the, the response of what was seen at Fort Myers Beach, Sanibel, Pine Island, and Hector Cafferata, the other schools. Yeah, I think having never been up in a helicopter, that in itself was a pretty unique experience. But I would say that, um, you know, just the impact going up and just kind of seeing the aerial view of what it looked like and the damage was something I'll never forget. And it really, um, you had ideas, but then it became a reality, The just the kind of damage, the damage and destruction that our community, you know, you know, just that had, had suffered and experienced. And just um, as you start to see roofs, I can remember looking through the marinas and just seeing boats and cars and, and just the flooding. And, you know, um, it, it was just, it just began to set in that, you know, this was this was a recovery effort, you know, and a long-term one to really start thinking through that. And, you know, landing on Pine Island, I remember, uh, you know, um, the principal landing on, you know, Pine Island. You know, Pine Island, you know, for all intents and purposes, should not have been there, and it was there, you know, and and very little, if any, water intrusion in the building, um, and um, and so just, but uh, but just just seeing that, in, you know, the community and just seeing housing and and the things that we were now going to have to re that long term recovery, it was something that definitely um, was impacted. I was impacted significantly by it, and just uh, um, you know, just. I'll never forget. Yeah. So principals were then tasked in those first few days after the storm they, to go and give an inspection of their campus. They're not experts, but it did come back pretty good that more than half of the schools might be considered low damage. Did that give you encouragement about a possibility of, of getting back open and on our feet sooner rather than later? Yeah, tremendous appreciation to our school leaders who went out. You know, we, you know, we assess instruction in classrooms. <laughs> We're not experts in building and bu building envelope and roofs. And but those initial assessments were just getting eyes on building. What were we seeing out there? So um, they went out to schools, and you know we established kind of a, a low, medium, high, just based on a visual approach. Not 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 ripping things down. Not seeing you know mm -hmm. amount of debris, any water intrusion, things of that nature. But that gave us. Uh, I would say we were encouraged. We were we were definitely encouraged that we had, we had a. Yeah, a significant amount of our schools that were that that we categorize as low. It's important to note that some of those lows, as we started to peel back, then became medium, then mm -hmm. became high. But that, but those are those initial assessments to have an idea. And then those that had some damage, but you know, we categorize as the. I think the medium was the was the one that was kind of a little gray. And then the high, where roofs were peeled back, windows were missing from schools, mm -hmm. and or buildings that had taken in significant water were classified as high. So that's kind of how our initial assessments to be able to start that process. But I think it's also important, you know, we had to take a step back and allow our, our leaders, our staffs to actually assess their own damage within their homes as well. You know, we're trying to balance. This yep. storm really tested the balance between the personal, you know, and, and the professional responsibilities we have in our jobs because many of our Many of our, our school leaders, our administrators, and our staff, our teachers, and, and those who support our students experience significant damage as well within their homes. Many, a number of them lost their homes. So I think it was important to find that right balance. And we told leaders, you know, you have to take care of your home, you know, take care of stuff at home before you can start to think about repairing. So it was, it was finding that what, I, what we call the just right balance between, between that.
You know, there are homeowners probably today still complaining that they can't get a contractor yeah. to come work. Mm-hmm. And within days, we've got contractors working on, you know, as many as 88 of our school buildings to yeah. get them back into place. So how did that happen so quickly on such a large scale? I think um, a lot was around the pre, you know, the pre-storm preparation that was done around, you know, lining up consultancy with, you know, one of the consultants to help us with, you know, the FEMA piece. I know if, you know, our community who's listening knows that, you know, particularly homeowners, you know, what, what that, what that may look like. And you obviously with insurances and things of that nature, but um, so, and then the efforts of an incredible team, you know, our, our team really collectively together, just mobilized and everyone taking different roles. Obviously I can't speak enough about the team, our internal team, not um, in leadership, you know, whether it's in finance, uh, maintenance facilities. I mean, it was just collectively everyone just kind of coming together, um, establishing just kind of some clear, uh, goals of what we were trying to accomplish with some deadlines and then working with, uh, you know, so many that just stepped up, you know, in support. And in addition to those contractors, you know, I can't speak enough around the support that we had from uh, our districts around the state. You know, I think of Miami-Dade, who was boots on the ground as, as a thought partner. Um, you know, Alex Martinez, who came over and made multiple trips, you know, over the course of a week, almost daily at times, going back and forth to help support in the strategic thinking around the recovery. You know, Broward County, Hillsborough County, Pinellas County, Marion County, Volusia, the list goes on. I don't want to leave anyone out, but just so many that, that helped in that recovery, whether it was, and it wasn't just debris pickup, you know, HVAC, plumbers, um, all types of folks to come in to help and support. And um, as we as we think about, you know, that those recovery efforts, so it was contractors and a lot of our own internal teams and maintenance are able to stand up. So we, kept, we, we strategically looked at the low schools and really looking at our own staff and those district supported uh, that we were receiving to be able to assess and take care of those schools. And then we focused our, our contracts or the professional contractors in those medium and high schools to give us assessments. So that was part of the strategy around that. And you kind of... Uh, I like to say we had that all scripted out before the storm. It's kind of something you just kind of you work on as you go, and and it was really in that triad approach around we're dealing with the immediate, but thinking about what's next and then what's the next next. Yep. There's a couple of things that that don't come first to mind that I want to ask about as well because there's so much focus on rebuilding and reopening and getting schools, but I think about food services and the work that they were doing first with shelters, then after the storm. I mean that department was crazy busy. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to know that you know when you think about our initial response. So, you know, we were in the shelter business the first three, four, five days of the storm. So when we talk about the recovery, we're balancing both of those. And a big piece of that, we talked about our school leaders, but our food services and our our incredible staff that just supported feeding, uh, you know, I think the number was something like 35,000 meals. I think the number was the last number that I heard around just over the course of the storm and in the shelters. So, um, but they had that piece, so that was happening then throughout. And then thinking about some of the food drives and feeding our community. In addition to that, I know we had a tremendous um, opportunity here in the district office to, to provide uh, food, you know, for our staff and our for our community, and some, and then working through that as well. Um, but then they had to stand up, looking back at assessments in kitchens and, and looking at the damage, and then putting in the process to then order foods. We are fortunate that our our Florida freezer, which is where we actually house the food for our cafeterias. I mean, we were fortunate that we didn't lose power there. The generators worked, so we didn't we didn't have that number of food loss within where we where we actually store all of our food. Obviously within within kitchens, within schools, 
you know, there was some loss due to, you know, there's rules around how things, how long things can go without being refrigerated. So, but they were incredible in just helping provide us that support to make sure that not only our community and our students were fed throughout the storm, but then as we returned to school as well. Yep. Academic services, that, that team was going in circles. It seems like it's, um, you know, all the talk of what they were doing to try to plan for a return, yeah. uh, double sessions, partner schools, virtual options, uh, all these kind of things. So how did we get to where we, we put the two middle schools on the Florida virtual school and the partner school options for those that couldn't go back to their buildings? Yeah. So they, you know, the, that was all due to the smartest person, right? And the smartest person, like we like to say, sometimes the smartest person in the room is the room. And it was about bringing that entire collective team together. And it was just incredible work and collaboration as, um, can't thank enough, you know, uh, Dr. Cooper McCoy, Dr. Spira, our executive directors support our academic services team around thinking about that. And the commitment, you know, was very clear. Our superintendent, it was very clear around our commitment to our community, our schools to keep our, 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 our learners together, the community of learners, we wanted to keep them together. So that was a grounding principle that we talked about, like not wanting to separate students and separate schools around that as best as we could. Right. So it was not, it was, so really thinking through that and we, we threw a lot of ideas on, on the wall, right? We just threw a lot of different things out. We, you know, we talked double sessions. We talked about, you know, how we can do, and we try to, and then knowing how, what would that look like? Cause you know, and how would that, how particularly, what would that, what would the, what would the academic experience be for students that, that you know, we talk about students first and this is really about, you know, making, try to the continuity of learning for students, but that academic experience and then challenges to not create a, a schedule that, um, that would create significant barriers for our parents and our community, as well as far as getting kids to and from school. So we quickly pivoted away from or moved away from, uh, you know, double sessions and try to do. And that's where the idea around we had room in some schools. And, you know, uh, thank you to Principal um, Principal Coots at, uh, at um, San, San Carlos Park, Park yeah. uh, which was, you know, had room to house two of our schools. So and, and kind of coming up with that idea to keep them together. Yes, it is a, a bit of a distance, but th that importance of that, those learning, that community of learners together and then found some creative ways to kind of split. Not ideal, not perfect, mm -hmm. but to a commitment to keep schools. So, I mean, but that was a tremendous work and coordination on behalf of our academic services team around the thinking. And then to our leaders who actually had our leaders, our assistants, our administrators, our teachers who actually had to now implement, you know, and do that. And there was a lot of moving parts. It was a puzzle. But, um, you know, we here we are and we're, we're making it happen. We got it happening. Yeah. So the goal is set for October 17th to get everybody back to that educational environment. And with the, the there was criteria that was set to do so, those nine lists. Why such a deliberate approach to reopening at that point? Kind of change the thinking from low, medium, high to you need to clear these criteria. Yes. Yeah, so now we had to now we had the low, medium, high, but now we had to find a way to uh Really quantify and just be a, be feel confident that yes, our schools cleared something that now they were safe to return, right? Uh, especially you know schools where uh, might have taken in you know water, so it was water intrusion and damage. So and yeah, and that not to mention like you know different systems in schools. So um, so establishing that criteria was really critical to be able to sign off on you know yes we have a checklist of you know. You know, is air conditioning working? Intercoms working? Do we have the ability to serve food? Um, I know we talked about indoor air quality. You know, was that what? You know, what did that look mm -hmm. like? Testing that and, and working through all of those things. You know, by um, to be able to get to a place where we felt we could sign up, say, yeah, this school is ready to return. You know, what was the approach? It was safe. 
sensible and effective. And effective, yeah. yeah. Safe, sensible, and effective. Uh, you know, and again, safety was you know top of mind at first around that, and then um, you know sensible around what made sense. And I talked a little bit about mm-hmm. the schedule piece around and. It may make sense here, but if it creates significant challenges and, you know, our current system is not perfect. I know we still have, you know, and our superintendent, you know, he promised, you know, it wasn't going to be a perfect plan. We were going to, you know, potentially possibly make some mistakes along the way, but we were committed to those grounding principles to say sensible and effective. 13 schools did open on October 17th. Yeah. How'd that make you feel? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um it wasn't the number wasn't large enough that first day. Obviously, uh, thirteen schools, and because you because we wanted to have kids back in school, but again, using those grounding principles and the criteria as well. Um, um, while I wish the number was uh, larger that first day, I felt good about those thirteen, knowing that we had we had done it in a in a really responsible way, where the safety was at the forefront around that, and knowing that the commitment over the course of you know, we called it a staggered opening. So while the number might have been, I think it was the just right to be able to test out, you know, buses back on the road, not at, not at the significant numbers day one. They slowly increased for day two. I think we had 16 schools the second day, 46 schools the, next, the third day. You know, and by, by week's end, we had all, we had, um, all schools back, you know, in, um, in an academic setting. I know a couple of schools started on Florida virtual school, yep. but, uh, but they all had that academic experience by the end of that week. So it was a, but it was a team effort. It was, it was a team effort. And again, tremendous appreciation to our, to our team for that. Did you get a chance to enjoy the accomplishment of getting every school back by the end of that week? Or was your mind already moving forward to the next challenge? I think for like three seconds, right? You, you, you enjoy that. We have, you know, some students back, but obviously, your mind's always said, we want to get our kids back. Mm-hmm. We know um, we know the impacts that we've seen over the last couple of years with kids not being in school and just, you know, the well-being of our kids and, and checking on them. But, again, the commitment was to do it right, to be really safe in doing so, to get them back. So um, I think, um, you know, that was the grounding principle and knowing that. and But really feeling good about as they started to return and the joy. And I know we also did provide some time. So while students were coming back, I think it was important to have opportunities for that reunification mm-hmm. of staffs. So we had, you know, the commitment was when a, when a school was cleared, they had a couple of days of staff reunification to get together. And then a second day that was some staff and students and families can come back to the building just to kind of walk around, get a sense of it. And so that third day, yep. whatever that third day was, was actually students coming back and, and doing that. So it was um, definitely something that was, you know, trying to think about, you know, we're in a people business, right? So thinking about our, our teachers, our staff, um, and our students and families as well. So we have the three schools that are still displaced, Fort Myers Beach Elementary, Sanibel, Cafarata. Can you quickly kind of touch on what is ahead in maybe the rest of the school year for those campuses? Sure. So, um Having had the opportunity to visit actually all three of those schools, uh, Fort Myers Beach recently as yesterday I visited, I think it's important to note, like all three schools, they were kind of in a, a little bit of a different situation. So um, I think with visiting Sanibel, um, you know, we received news. We've we've had engineers out, and they've deemed the, they've deemed the, the building, you know, structurally yeah. sound. So looking at the remediation, I think there's a there's an extended. So there's a lot more work. So there's there's remediation companies on the ground as I as we speak of uh, remediating. So um, 
for you know while San Carlo for San Carlo is the lo- current location of the Sanibel School, um, that's a shorter term, and we we anticipate and hope in the coming months to be able to hopefully return those students back to to that building. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Hector Cafferato, we are working on. Um, they're currently split. We, we recognize and understand that's not ideal, so we're working on a temporary location, potentially a portable site. I know there's more to come at an upcoming board meeting this week to discuss what that might look like, as well as that's the that's the long term, short term plan, mm-hmm. and then there's what is the long term uh, for the school because the building that building took in significant water, right. the roof peeled back, so there's just a lot of. Uh, different options that we're going to be discussing this week around the long term, but the immediate is the potential of standing up a portable campus. And then at Fort Myers Beach, um, we've had some preliminary reports around the structure um, uh, withstood the storm, at least many bu- number of buildings there, uh, but internally significant damage within the school and, and what that what those decision points will be. So I think more to come with Fort Myers Beach around that, I think for the foreseeable um, future St. Carl is the location, but we'll have, we've committed to having communication with all three of these communities weekly. So mm-hmm. we connect with them on Fridays to give them and provide them updates. And I know uh, by, by week's end, we should have a little bit more uh, direction for like a Fort Myers beach and we'll provide some updates, but weekly to those communities around what they could expect to keep, fa- to keep families and parents and, uh, informed of, of as we're thinking through um, this recovery. Yeah. Well, those are the stories we're going to be following in the weeks yeah. and months and mm-hmm. hopefully not years ahead. Mm-hmm. But uh, Chief of Staff Mike Ramirez, I want to thank you for giving us this kind of look back at how no. decisions were made for no, the school thanks, district thanks of Lee for County. Thanks for the opportunity to come in. Appreciate, Appreciate it. Appreciate you coming so. in and I hope you, that you enjoyed this edition of the Lee Schools TV podcast as well. We're back again next month. See you then.